This is Docera Digest Podcast, breaking down health concepts. This podcast is brought to you by Docera Life Center. This innovative clinic is finding new solutions to the evolving challenges mankind faces in the 21st century. By utilizing cutting edge technology and testing, they find root causes and also offer treatment with energy and nutrition. What is the mission? To dynamically change lives for the better while impacting families for generations. The information shared directly or indirectly in the Docera Digest podcast is not to be understood as or misconstrued as medical advice. This information is not a replacement for your current health provider who is acutely aware of your current health state and course of treatment. Any information shared about a product or service discussed by any host or guest on this podcast is not to be interpreted as a doctor-patient relationship. Hi, I'm Dr. Caleb Frank. Welcome back to Docera Digest, where we are breaking down health concepts. Today, we are continuing our series on energy medicine. If you haven't watched our previous episodes in the series yet, we encourage you to go back and watch those as we discussed at length what energy is by examining the physics and quantum physics of energy, the biological aspects of energy, as well as discussing the laws of energy. We also discussed how energy medicine was the original traditional medicine by examining the history of how energy medicine developed going all the way back to ancient Egypt and progressing forward through Ayurvedic and traditional Chinese medicine, then continuing on through more recent developments. In this episode, we are going to have a sensational discussion about some of the key qualities or abilities that make it possible for us to interact with and interpret the world around us. So today we're going to be talking about the senses, and we're going to answer questions like, how many senses do we really have? What are the main senses that we have? Why don't we usually consider the possibility of other senses? What is the purpose of our senses and how do they work? And how do the subconscious mind and our intuition use our senses to support and affect our daily lives? So I'm going to start with the question, how many senses do we have? So it would not be surprising if the most common answer to that question is five. Most of us are taught the five senses of sight, touch, taste, smell, and hearing in elementary school, if not earlier, and they're usually what we are referring to when we talk about the senses. We also often hear of the sixth sense as being some kind of abnormal or supernatural sensory ability. But is this the true extent of our senses? Where did the concept of five senses even originate from? For that, we're going to have to look at the Greek philosopher Aristotle, who lived in the 300 BC era. He is credited as the first person to list and describe these senses. In his work, De Anima, he not only listed out the five senses, but also put them in a hierarchical, hierarchical order based on what he considered to be the most important, starting with sight. And then he went on to hearing, smell, taste, and touch. So sight, obviously, is the key aspects of our sight are light, shapes, and color. Now, he actually had an interesting concept of sight as being in relation to the transparency of air or water. When it is dark, air or water can potentially be seen through, but when it is light, it can actually be seen through. I think it's kind of interesting because it kind of goes back to when we were talking in the first episode about the potential energy versus kinetic energy. It kind of ties in with that. Without the presence of light energy, we can potentially see, but until that light energy is there, we can actually see. 
just thought that was kind of interesting. <clears throat> so hearing is not just the ability to hear sounds, but also the ability to sense distance and direction of sounds. Now, in Aristotle's and his followers' um, kind of processes or thoughts, they believed that sight and hearing were given higher priority because they were considered distant senses, whereas the other senses were considered bodily senses. And they felt like the distant senses were more objective because they were removed from the body, whereas the other ones were more subjective because they were part of the body senses. So <clears throat> the ability to smell or sense of smell is the ability to differentiate between different aromatic molecules, which allow us to tell the difference between things like coffee and mint or apples and oranges just by the way they smell. Taste, we all know that <clears throat> the tongue is responsible for taste of sweet, sour, bitter, or salty. And then touch is the ability to understand information based on what we feel. <clears throat> So these are known as the big five. These are the senses, again, that we all learned early on in life, and they're the ones that we most commonly refer to as the senses. So another interesting thing was Aristotle and his followers also believed that these senses were considered a gateway to reality. In other words, without being able to sense, without having these senses, we wouldn't be able to understand the reality around us. So I thought that was interesting. I actually want to see if you guys had any other thoughts on that or if you guys would, if you were making the list, would you change the order around? I probably would on some things, but yeah. I'll talk about that here in a minute. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go into more detail on that later. Um, so there has been uh, some debate as to whether we are limited to five senses or not, and different people or different groups will categorize things differently um, to get us up to either 9, 21, or even 53 senses. So a lot of neurologists have uh, come to consensus about nine senses overall, adding to the big five the sense of balance, our ability to stand and, you know, just balance, whether it's on one leg or not, you know, just being able to stand upright is a sense of balance. Proprioception, which is our body awareness. So this is where if you close your eyes and try to touch your nose, you, you're aware of where things are in your body or of where aware of where your body is in space. There's also the sense of temperature, the ability to feel hot or cold. I know most of this, most of us have been definitely feeling the hot part recently. When I got my car the other day and I was reading 116 degrees, I definitely felt the sense of heat. <laughs> And then there's also the sense of pain or nociception, so the ability for the brain to process that there is painful signals or things that cause pain in the body. So these bring us up to the total of nine. <clears throat> now with other categories, you, again, you can get up to 21 senses by adding things like a sense of itchiness, a sense of pressure, sense of thirst, sense of hunger, or even a sense of time. So again, I did say that with certain categorizations, we can get up to 53 senses. And Dr. Kyson, we were talking about this before. Do you want to elaborate on those categories and how we get to those 53? Well, sure. So when we look at these different categories, we have uh, two major areas here. We have our special senses and our general senses. So special senses is basically what it is. We have special organs that are designed to pick up this information. So that's vision, taste, balance in the ears, hearing, the smell, all these things are special senses. There's organs that are designated to that purpose. 
We get the general senses. This is uh, kind of in contrast because these are all associated with a sense of touch. So they lack special organs, but the general organ is the skin itself. But they have more cells that are particularly uh, designed to be able to De detect these things or it will change. So when we talk about like mental senses, so I'm gonna break it down in four different categories here. Mental senses like pain, no susception, he was just talking about, external, internal, uh, mental issues, spiritual distress, a sense of self, including friendship, uh, companionship, or just our psychic capacity. We get the chemical, now again, we go back to gustic, gustation, which is taste, olfaction, smell, and the chemical senses both have uh, the sensory receptor and they respond to the molecules of whatever we're breathing in or whatever we're eating. So and then the sense of feeling, so a sense of gravity, so we can feel how we're interacting with that, so proprioception, things like that. Uh, air and wind pressure, so we can feel the changes in the pressure, and you can also feel the, the wind blowing on your skin, so the air movement around you. Um, you also have chemical senses for hormonal sense, you know, uh, such as pheromones. So when you're breathing these in, they react and they can have effects on the body, hunger for food, water or air, whatever our body's needing. We have a sense of that. And then you get into something very interesting. We talked talk about radiation or light energy, the skin, which is the largest organ in the body is very good at detecting light. Now we may not be. Uh, familiar with this kind of concept in this way, but where bodies are very photosensitive, okay? So they're very similar to that of the eye, even though it's not actually bringing the information the same way the eye is as a special organ. But when we expose ourselves to the sun, our skin receives so much ultraviolet radiation, and depending on the dosage and what your body can handle, um, it also picks up the visible light and the infrared radiation, and so it picks up a full spectrum. The eye is only good for a small percentage of that, but the ultraviolet, the infrared, our body and skin react to that and pick that up. So we, re we receive these billions of photons, which are energy packets in the sun, which interact with molecules that absorb light in the skin, such as biomolecules, endogenous chromophores, pigments, and opsins. The beneficial or harmful effects exposure to the sun really depends on the interactions between these. So while our skin cells have molecules that feel light, we have pigments in skin that absorb the light. The photons themselves are not mutagenic. So people who develop skin cancer for too much sun, it's not so much the photons that are doing this. They do nothing unless they are absorbed. Then they participate in the photochemical reactions and they generate molecules into what we call excited states, which react chemically with other molecules. So among the molecules that capture light, opsins are proteins that modulate many of the cellular responses to the sun's exposure, and they can be considered the eyes of the skin. Opsins in reality are receptors that have chromophores. A chromophore is a sensor for light, so chromo for chromatic. That is a portion of where the physical chemical interactions with light energy occur, causing a change in the conformation or the shape or state of the entire molecule. So at, as it is a membrane protein, when it changes conformation, it starts to interact intracellularly. So it's on the outside of the cell, and when it reacts, it starts stimulating a change or a shift inside of the cell itself. And this can uh, cause a, a cascade or a trigger reactions provoking many biological responses. 
So I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Bowers here, who's going to talk a little bit about, more about these receptors and go into a little more depth in some of this. <laughs> a lot more depth maybe on some of them. Thank Hang you, on. Dr. Tyson. Thank you, Dr. Caleb. Yeah, hang on. Strap in. This is going to get technical. Just kidding. You, <laughs> it, you know, the funny thing, I, I listened to you guys about the 5, the 9, uh, 21, or 53 senses. And the common thing for me, it brings new light to the meaning. You know, you got to get your senses together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how do we do that? How do we get all these senses? And how do we get them to come together? So we know that there are 53 senses, uh, both doctors just mentioned, four categories. And they communicate us to the world or the world to us, right? However, for our existence in our world environment, we have to have receptors because we all know people that have no pain receptors, no receptors. They don't have that pain. They can't feel pain or they have other emotional disturbances or other things. So the question is, then what is it that receptors do? Well, generally receptors receive information in, they process it, and then they send out a specific message that results in a specific action or reaction. Human body can achieve an un, can achieve this understanding of the world through its sensory or receptor systems. The information is achieved by conversion of the forms of energy into an electrical signal. Well, that's what we're talking about here in energy medicine. Is there some form of electrical impulse or signal that has some very special mechanisms? So receptors come in many different types, but they're generally divided into two categories. So once you think of a cell, right, or the skin, however way you want to look at that. And we have intracellular receptors, which are found inside the cell, the cytoplasm and or in the nucleus. And then we have cell surface receptors, which are found out in the plasma membrane. So when you have a cell, you have some on the outside of the cell and some on the inside of the cell. So I'm gonna break these four major categories of receptors that have been expressed here already down a little bit further so we have some understanding of them. So nuclear receptors. These receptors are a class of proteins responsible for sensing steroids, thyroid hormones, vitamins, and certain other unique molecules. They work with other proteins to regulate the expression of these specific genes in our DNA or genome, thereby controlling the development, the homeostasis, and the overall metabolism of the body. They bind directly to DNA regulating components or the genome with the expression of the adjacent genes. So this is how the, the dynamic aspect of our genome or what we refer to as epigenetics, has an effect within our body. The regulation of gene expression then results in an up or down regulation of the gene expression. They have direct control of the genomic DNA. So we talk about how things are either turned on or turned off by these receptors via the electrical impulse that's coming into our body. So then we have what are called enzyme-like receptors. And an enzyme-linked receptor is a catalytic receptor, which allows the receptors on the cell surface to bind together cross the cell membrane and cause enzymatic activity or exchanges in the intracellular side, inside the cells. This then begins a cascade of transactions that the cell either will or must respond to. The next category, which, uh, forgive me for geeking out on this, but this is a critical one, right, is the G-protein coupled receptors. Now the G-protein receptors are proteins that are cell surface receptors that detect molecules outside the cell and yet have the ability to activate inside cellular responses. This family of receptors is the largest and most diverse group of membrane receptors that we know of in the body. These unique proteins pass through the cell membrane seven times and they form six loops interacting with different binding molecules, processing information from outside the cell through the cell membrane, which is communicating in the cell membrane and then down inside the cells. 
These receptors act like an inbox for messages in the form of energy, peptides, fats, sugars, and proteins. These messages inform the cells about the presence or the absence of life-sustaining light or nutrients in their environment, and or they convey information sent by other cells like, help, I need help, <laughs> you know, come help me, right? So they have light-sensitive compounds that affect odors, pheromones, hormones, neurotransmitters, and they vary in size from very small molecules to peptides, which is medium-sized, to very large proteins. These receptors are activated by antagonists that cause a spontaneous auto-activation reactions. When we think about autoimmune conditions, these things are involved. There's been some signal that has automatically turned this on within its DNA-given uh, uh, aspect or requirements to make some changes. When these receptors face a conformational charge, so we think about AC and DC electrical charges coming in, they'll have an effect on the genome-building blocks of the DNA, which is what can potentially change our DNA strand. This is referred to as adaptability or morphology of the DNA or the genome. These receptors are found in humans, plants, yeast, viruses, bacteria, parasites, and animals, and they convey information to and from their environment. Humans ha alone have nearly 1,000 different gene protein receptors, and each one is highly specific to a very particular signal. These G protein coupled receptors are involved in many different diseases. It's an important drug target because research estimate about 34 to 50% of all FDA-approved drugs target over 108 members of this receptor family. And if you don't think that's good enough, the global sales of those drugs alone is estimated to be over 180 billion US dollars. Pharmacopia, they know what they're going after. This involves about 50% of all drugs currently on the market related to treat many diseases like mental disorders, metabolic and endocrine disorders, immune disorders, viral infections, cardiovascular disorders, inflammatory issues, sense disorders, and even some cancers. These receptors regulate an incredible range of bodily functions from sensation to growth hormone responses. That's an important receptor site. The last one I'm going to talk about is the ligand-gated ion channels. These receptors are commonly referred to as iotropic receptors, which affect our minerals or ions such as iodine, sodium, potassium, calcium chloride, and allows them to pass through the membrane response to the binding of a chemical messengers like neurotransmitters. So think about the sensory input that's coming through this body. All these receptors are designed to go up to this brain so we have a reaction and come back down into the body. This flow leads to ions across the membrane causing an excitatory response or an inhibitory response. This action allows what I call the divide and conquer approach to finding the structure of proteins it needs. And this is where the electrosignals come into play via sensory neurons. So we look at all that. Once electrical frequency has been sensed or made an impact to the body, it will flow to a specific receptor and then sends a signal to the nervous system or the brain, be processed, and then the appropriate response from the brain or nervous system will cause the action or reaction. Wow, this is a dynamic mechanical machine. There's many different types of stimulus or receptors for stimuli, chemoreceptors that have already been talked about that detect the presence of chemicals, thermoreceptors that detect change in temperature when it's 116 degrees in your mm -hmm. car, mechanoreceptors that detect forces or pressure or tension, photoreceptors detect light during vision, and baroreceptors that are sensitive to change in our blood pressure. Think about that. Walk into a room and you just experience all those receptors, all right? Sensory receptors perform countless functions in our bodies, Dr. Caleb stated, mediating in vision, hearing, smell, taste, all those things. But let me briefly discuss some of the major receptor types in those areas. And I'm gonna bring in a couple of key factors so we have some understanding of the significance, how this affects our DNA as well. 
which affects our life, which affects our, our degradatory effect of our body. So the, the receptors of vision, right, the sensory organ of the eyes, the retina, when the retina, the cornea and lens, with the cornea and lens, they, the light focuses on the back of the eye and transforms the signal from any different frequencies of light and physical matter into electrical energy. They then give some inter interpretation and understanding of the external world to the brain. As we know, it flips it upside down. The G protein then is part of that photosensitive membrane. Since light energy is transformed by many different receptors in the eye to the nerves, and it signals the closure of sodium channels that otherwise are open when it's dark. So that's the, the significance of all these receptors. They're opening or closing uh, gateways or doorways or reactionary components to what we see. Receptors of hearing, sound waves travel to the inner ear, creating a vibration. Then it transformed that into a mechanical energy, an impulse again, that then amplifies the mechanical energy into a fluid-filled structure, which relays energy to hair cells, which are the primary receptors in sound signal creation. And that is transmitted to the, aud the auditory nerve, which allows the ion channels to open up and discriminate the type of sounds we hear. Receptors of balance. I need that one, man. <laughs> the inner ear senses balance as well as speed. So with head motion or pressure impulses of sound, the receptors of the vestibular system detect the change in the fluid motion. And with changes in position and thus changes in fluid motion, this causes the opening of the receptor channels leading to action potentials to the auditory nerve. Hey, what happened? We just went 60 miles an hour. I got to catch up. That's where vertigo, those issues come in. So the rate of fluid motion plus the quality of the fluid gives more information about that motion. Receptors of taste. Taste buds on the tongue help us enjoy and discriminate what we ingest. As Dr. Caleb says, it detects sweet, sour, bitter, uh, sour, and there's another called onomy, which is the savory taste. It's where we d decide what is savorable to us, whether it's wine, meats, et cetera, all right, those kind of things, right? And once again, the G protein receptors recognize and can, dis can discriminate a wide variety of substances by attaching to different domains on the receptor complex. By the way, you guys know how many times we replace our taste receptors? Anybody remember that in physiology? In a day, in a month, in yeah, a year, in a Yeah, most minute. of them are all replaced within a week to two weeks. Yeah. So if you stop and think about the change in diet habit, it can take several weeks before the new taste buds are in there, and it takes several transitions before we no longer have that taste or acquire that taste or want that taste. Brings new definition of sweet tooth, huh? <laughs> Every ta each taste bud has variety of types of taste cells and it depends upon the concentration to determine which taste is perceived more strongly. Receptors of smell. The smell occurs by binding the molecules to receptors on the membrane of the nose hairs called the cilia, causing an action potential that sends that information to the brain. Once again, the G protein receptors bind to that substance and allows the electrons to go down their gradient of what that smell orientation is through specific molecule vibrational energies, and that causes the flow of chemicals that changes the subsequent signal of the brain for the smell. So whether it's an orange or an apple, whether it's lime or lemon. Hey, that's difficult. I'm just kidding. So receptors on the skin. Uh, when we talk about there's a lot of different ones that come into the skin, but signals from the skin may be conveyed by physical change, which are called the mechanoreceptors, temperature, which is thermoreceptors, and pain, which are the nociceptors. And it's in all different layers of skin. And we talk about there's anywhere from three to nine layers throughout the body. All right. So skin possesses these different ones in the epidermis, the dermis, the hypodermis, which allows for demonstration of touch and or pressure, whether it's light or deep. And then other qualities of the external world is, is assessed by scan receptors, which include temperature, pain, and the itch. So the Americana receptors, six different types of them, right? They respond to physical change, including touch, pressure, vibration, and stretch. Hair follicles on the hair or the head anywhere on the skin 
can detect light touch and even give you pain receptors, right? If it's pulled or plucked. <laughs> so they detect indentation or slipping of objects. Like when you start, you can't control something, it detects how much pressure you need to hold on to a bottle, right? Others detect vibration. Others create an understanding of structure and texture. Some detect stretch, while some detect pleasant or lactile, like tactile sensations. That was easy for me to say, wasn't it? <laughs> Proprioceptors are also mechanoreceptors, which include receptors respond to muscle contraction, relaxation, and muscle strain. You're working out. How far do you go? These signals tell you when you're you're going beyond that uh, that domain of comfortability. Then the thermoreceptors, the body has both warm and cold receptors, and this is kind of interesting when you think about this. The receptors display a constant discharge to the specific temperature, and when they experience the opposite temperature that occurs, there's a sudden ceasing of receptor discharge. So think about this. When you put your hand on the stove and it's hot, the first thing you actually feel is cold because it stops certain receptors. And then all of a sudden, here comes the temperature. Here comes the pain. Yeah. That's why you see a kid. It's like, why couldn't they feel that? Because they were sensory deprived within understanding that they thought they were touching something cold when it was actually hot. All right. So receptors help signal pain that's related to temperature, pressure, and chemicals. So think about pain in our body, what we're actually going through. And we talk about different aspects of the counter-receptors that fire off at different signals. But most such receptors have low sensitivity to detect all sensations to the brain. Is that significant or not? Is that important or not? When it comes to pain, nociceptors only signal when the body's reached a point of tissue damage, right? So pressure isn't necessarily pain. It just detects pressure. But you put a needle through there, now you felt pain, <laughs> right? So inflammatory markers increase during tissue damage by binding to specific receptors and initiate pain signaling either internally or externally. So the last few things on this is the adaption is common in all sensory receptors. As a stimulus can constantly excites the receptor, there'll be a decrease in the rate of action potentials. That's why the longer you do something, the less you feel it, right? And we can manage that through our potentiation or ability to become greater than what we thought last night. Anyway. So the sensory receptors are responsible for helping maintain homeostasis, which is balance in the body, and for allowing the body to best react to an internal and external events. So let me leave you with this. When your receptors are healthy, it is easier for you to stay healthy and not get sickness or disease. When your receptors or sensory input is unhealthy, it can be difficult to get healthy and avoid further disease. Now, Dr. Luke's going to take us a little bit further and discuss all this dynamic effect on subconscious. So Dr. Luke. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Ben. And I hope you listeners were really paying close attention because there will be a test on all that. So, <laughs> um, I know Dr. Craig's real excited for me to talk about the subconscious. Um, <laughs> yeah, I want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> I think we all do. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I am the resident emotional psychological expert. <laughs> I at, do go at, to you frequently for emotional help. That's right. <laughs> so sub is under and conscious is aware that you're under something. Yes, <laughs> that's right. So anyways, the subconscious um, is responsible for how we interpret life and its events going on around us. In other words, the subconscious has to do with how we feel. I want to lay out a very, very basic understanding of what the subconscious is. And then Dr. Craig's going to elaborate on how that applies to the real world, real world concerning our uh, intuition. So how this works is you have a conscious input to your brain, and then it goes through subconscious processing, and then the outcome is how we feel or think about something. So 
a good example of this is why two people can have a very different reaction to an objective reality. And there's no deeply dividing issues going on in our current events today. So, um, <laughs> but let's talk about something maybe a little bit more lighthearted. So say it's raining. Here's a good example of this. It's raining. One person consciously sees this objective reality and subconsciously processes it. And the outcome is that he is mad that it's raining. Maybe it ruined his plans or something. Whereas the other person who goes through the same process, the same objective reality, the same processing, uh, and the outcome is he's happy at training. Maybe he's a farmer. So. <laughs> Unless it's harvest time. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah right. and that, that's not good. But anyways, there's subconscious thoughts, feelings, emotions interpreted and processed this objective data and yielded opposite outcomes. This example doesn't quite do it justice to understand the subconscious, but it's a good place to begin to try and conceptualize how this all works. Only our subconscious is not only processing conscious inputs of objective reality, but our subconscious is aware and processing of what we're not consciously aware of, hence its name, and is always processing data coming into the brain or the body, whether we're aware of it or not. So one concept that Freud developed and has been popular since then is to imagine an I, uh, the conscious and subconscious as an iceberg. The conscious portion is often referred to as the tip of the iceberg and accounts for 10% of our mind. And the rest below the water is considered to be the subconscious and is 90% of our mind. This can be further broken down into three concepts that makes up this proverbial iceberg. You have your id, your ego, and your superego. And id, ID, that's kind of funny how that's ID. And as Jason, our podcast guy, pointed out earlier, uh, maybe this is why we get the word idiot. So... <laughs> So well, the beginning thereof. Yeah, yeah exactly. Thanks so, for that, Jason. Yeah, <laughs> shout out, Jason. <laughs> so the it is entirely subconscious. It is thought that the it is with us from birth and is concerned with primal desires and instincts. Whereas the ego comes next and it is both conscious and subconscious and is kind of a mediator between our primal instincts and then what's called the superego. The superego is the last to fully developed and it is also conscious and subconscious and has to do with our sense of right and wrong and is largely shaped by how one is raised and is formed largely by the environment of childhood years and the belief systems within that. The processing, this all this processing and internal communication happening 24-7, it's again not just something that we're consciously aware of. So think of it this way, kind of tying back in with the senses if you think about it, is we're not only seeing visually what our eyes or our receptors are seeing, but it's our mind is what's seeing. And this is why when you're asleep and your eyes are closed and you happen to be dreaming, you see what you're dreaming. So this is all going on within the subconscious is being expressed. So even during your waking hours, your subconscious is constantly receiving input from the world around you. So when it comes to energy healing, whether that's acupuncture, kinesiology, applied kinesiology, SRT, psychology, EMDR, or whatever it is, this is essentially what we're trying to tap into in order to reveal potential answers that are hidden from our conscious awareness. So we're consciously trying to tap into the subconscious. So mm -hmm. a quick note, back to that iceberg analogy and the only the 10% being conscious, that isn't to say that we're only using 10% of our minds. Like I said, our mind, conscious and subconscious, is at work 24-7. And that requires energy even from a biochemical aspect. The brain accounts for only about 2% of the body's total mass, yet accounts for about 20% of the total energy requirement of the body. So think about that. So I'm going to kick it on over to Dr. Craig, and he's going to give us some more uh, practical examples of all this concerning intuition. 
Thanks, Dr. Luke. So as much as Dr. Ben went into the technical aspect, I'm going to kind of go into the theoretic and philosophical uh, aspects when it comes to senses. Uh, what I think is interesting is if you think about your senses, most of it is a subconscious thing. You don't sit and go, I taste this, I feel this, I, it's subconscious. And another aspect that I tie into, I also believe we have an unconscious aspect. And I, I simplify it down into this. Our consciousness is what we think, our subconscious is what we feel, and our unconscious is what we believe. So, let you ponder on that for a little bit. So, as we start to talk about intuition, I think if you talk to most people, most people would say, yeah, I've, I've had some intuition or gut feelings. What is that? So, I'm going to read a couple of definitions for you. Intuition is the ability to understand something immediately without the need for conscious reasoning. It is a thing that one knows or considers likely from instinctive feeling rather than conscious reasoning. Intuition is a form of knowledge that appears in consciousness without obvious deliberation. It's not magical by and neither a, a sorry, it is not magical, but rather a fault a faculty in which hunches are generated by the unconscious mind rapidly sifting through past experiences and cumulative knowledge. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about these senses that take in information and is processed. What do we do with that information? And I think what's interesting to me is intuition. I think this really speaks to what we do in our office. This is one of the most primary parts of it is we're taking in information from a patient or a client. You're seeing them, you're hearing them, you're touching you're even smelling and you have all these sensations that are coming into you. What does it mean? What do you do with that? As we are, in, are interpreting these, this information, we ultimately have an intuition about what's going on. Yes, you have knowledge that you've accumulated over time, but you do not consciously go through all the pathways. Outside of Mr. Encyclopedia over here, most of us don't know the percentages of the pathways of the epigenetic <laughs> blah 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 we'll we don't yeah. yes we don't necessarily consciously go through that all the time we trust our past experiences and intuition and what's even funny is intuition sometimes is called our sixth sense mm -hmm. so it, it guides us in making decisions is one of the biggest things it does and often it is very accurate the other thing it does is it helps us understand people better so Here's my question. What examples have you guys experienced of intuition? Well, let me just add to that, because I think that, that is a maturity level thing. I mean, we talk about intuition when we were kids, you know, whether like stove, I learned once, don't touch the stove or whatever. Or me being the 10th child, I observed my elder brothers and sisters get into trouble and go, oh, point taken, don't do that, you know. Don't so, get caught. Yeah, don't get. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Do it better than they did. Learn, learn how they got caught and get away, got away with it. Anyway, so I, I look at that and I, I go, as we look at our age of uh, maturity, as Dr. Luke says, as we're growing in that, and I go through the DNA, and the last phases of development DNA is inside the brain, and that's maturity. So some are mature at 20, some mature at 30, some at 40, some at 60. But when you look at that intuition, you walk into a room, you always feel something, right? And I would say that's your sixth sense or your intuition. And it's based on prior experiences or past experiences, both good and bad. So when I look at that away, I'd go, I'm looking at this event from a post lens 
to determine whether it's accurate or not, correct or not, and based on what my senses are telling me, I'm going to make a decisive action or reaction, whether it be good or bad, right or wrong or whatever. That's the way I'd look at it. Well, how many of us are actually in tune to our intuition in some ways that we actually pay attention to it or we dismiss it or we're just not aware of it or we don't develop that in some ways? And I think that really affects how we react to it. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in the next episode here when I talk about living things and how that affects us. But it's very interesting to see how our intuition changes. And the more that we've all done energy medicine stuff, the more we practice that in such a way that we listen Right. And we observe and we can see how that affects and changes. I think we're all much more tied into our intuition than we ever were before. Yeah. You know, and I think the more that you consciously make an effort for that, you can, it's like a muscle, you can communicate a little bit more consciously with your subconscious right. or the intuition there and to be able to be a little bit more aware of your surroundings and the things that you put into your body or surround yourself with. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. Most men don't have intuition. What? But Yeah, huh? <laughs> but most women do or most mothers do for sure. Mm-hmm. It's like they just know, they sense it. That us men, we either we compartmentalize it differently, or we don't. Ha- we haven't grown that muscle, as Doctor Kaiser was just talking about. Well, I, I think women's intuition is genetically just a little bit different as far as what their the fears, the way they've been brought up, the things that we've talked about here. They look at things differently. That I'm going to be called a sexist for this, but it's okay. <laughs> but I've eight th- sisters. Th- I'm going to talk yeah, about that. There you right. go. <laughs> so I think it's more of their job is to protect the family and to do things like this. So they're more consciously aware of things that can interfere with that and negatively affect the family or things like that. Where men, we have to overcome that, at least in the history of the world, and be able to overcome those fears and things to be able to still interact. But I think our intuition takes us in a different direction, especially as hunter-gatherers and things like that, where our intuition takes us to a place where we have to be able to think in a different way or to interact with our environment differently to be able to provide for the family back home. So. Whereas a 15, 16-year-old girl to 25-year-old girl, girl, she has to walk in and go, what's the safest thing? Who do I need to be aware of? Who's looking at me wrong or who's going to potentially harm me? And most of us guys never have to think about that. In today's world, that's exactly what the females yeah. are having to deal with. And they experience that all the time. Hey, my head's up here, not down there. You know, Look up me up here. I, it just seems like us men, we don't have to deal with that. And yet they have a total different sense of intuition that, Mm-hmm. we can't figure out what it is. Whereas like, Hey, when we're young, Hey, I'm gonna go ask her out. I wonder if she'll say yes or no. And we try to figure that part out. Yeah. But anyway, I think it's interesting too, when you look at specifically like a mother's intuition, and I know you can go into this in more detail than I can, but just think about how, when, you know, they give birth, part of the DNA or part of the, the makeup of that child stays with them. And if you look at it from kind of a quantum mm-hmm. aspect, there is some correlation to you know the energetic fields of that and how that interacts with the mother and how they can really be attuned to what's going on with the child even if they're you know miles or states away or whatever exactly. they can be more precisely in tune to what's going on with the child compared to the father who doesn't have exactly. that aspect and that's true in all of the animal kingdom I mean, mm-hmm. we see that specifically there's a few species that don't but most of them they do yeah. i think it's interesting because as we're talking about energy medicine Today is really about the information we're receiving. Right. Mm-hmm. And what I find interesting is we're all receiving the same information right now. Mm-hmm. Light, sound, whatever. And we're all processing it a little bit different. Right. Uh, it's, it's interesting. You get all these different aspects. I think sometimes energy medicine kind of gets looked at as this weird thing. And I'm like, 
you're doing it all the time in your own life and you don't even realize it. Yeah. Your intuition is to a degree energy medicine. Your, uh, and I think yeah. it's interesting too, we're talking about the difference between male and females. Is that gender-based? Is that job-based? Is that hormonal-based? You know, all those little things. Nuances. Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. all those impact how we process information. And so it's funny that you bring it up because one of the questions I put on here is, do we trust our intuition? Do we trust what we think? Do we trust what we feel? Do we trust what we believe? And well, they're all having a little bit of effect differently on think us. Think how a father trains his son, raises him, versus raising his daughter. Two different dynamics, right? That gender specificity that we talked about, which then the mother, the female does the same thing. She raises the son differently than, than the daughter. And as I look at all those components, I'm like, how do we process that? Because that's our upbringing. That's our environment. Mm -hmm. One of the other interesting things about the intuition aspect though, as we look at it here is as scientists, as, as what we're doing and science in general, when you're looking at traditional or new traditional medicine, you know, they're going through and they're looking for things that are consistent things between all, every individual to come up with, okay, well, this helps 75% of the people, but they're not concerned about the other 25. Yeah. And so they're looking for the big things here where energy medicine is so much looking for what is the commonality between all these things that we can treat it with. We're looking at specific things for the individual. We're looking at that individual. Mm -hmm. We're looking at their, what they need what they need to work through in their in their body or in their mind or whatever it is from their upbringing or something else they need to shift or change the thought patterns the subconscious behaviors that are no longer serving them in a positive way or learning new behaviors or new subconscious attributes that can help them move through life in a better way and i think that's a lot of what we're dealing with the energy medicine is we're, we're concerned about the chemistry we're concerned about all these different aspects of what's going on there but yet at the same time, we're also concerned about the intuition. We're concerned about the mind, the subconscious, all these things that need to be addressed to find complete healing. And I think that's what my intuition is telling me. <laughs> <laughs> that's real good. You have good intuition. <laughs> we would concur. Any Your other thoughts, gentlemen? Hmm. Well, then my intuition is that we bring this episode to a close. <laughs> so again, what I want to kind of emphasize is this this episode has been about the information we receive and really more how we as individuals process that information and what we do with it. Next time, what we're going to do is talk about where that information comes from. We're going to talk about our environment and how that impacts us, not only in the information we're receiving, but even how we process that information as well. So join us next time when we talk about the environmental energy. Thank you for listening to the Docera Digest podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can also find all the episodes and show notes over at doceralifecenter.com. While you're on the website, also be sure to check out the blog where you'll find videos and articles to help you proactively rebalance your health.